Welcome to Ornate Stairwells. Uh, I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Neve. Hi, I'm Neve. Uh, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, so I, I have three glasses of water just to really make sure I'll have to pee at some point tonight. Gee, thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then I also have a glass of like a very fancy cider that Emily got. Um, I don't remember the name of the cider, but it's good. Uh, it's like an alcoholic cider. I've got. I, I I'm gonna also have to pee because I just finished a ginger beer, a different ginger beer than the one I usually buy. Nora got Betty Buzz, which is too gingery and not enough sugar, I think. Mm. Um, I've got water, and then I've got. <clears throat> There's this new Nitro Pepsi stuff. Have you seen this? Uh, I have briefly heard of it. 
It's... I assume if you had, like, the nitro cold brew at Starbucks? Um, I've had, like, nitro cold brew stuff. Not, I don't think, the Starbucks one. Yeah, well, unless, you know what it is. Unless, like, we had it when I worked there, but I don't remember if we did or not. But I've had it before. It's, um... It's, like, you, like, kind of pour it, like, draft style almost. Yeah, so this is, like, a draft cola. So there's no, um... There's no, like, um, what am I trying to say? There's no carbonation to it. It's very weird. Yeah. Also, apparently, I'm supposed to to pour it, which I didn't realize, and I've been drinking these all unpoured, and I don't have anything to pour this into, so maybe I'll just put this back in the fridge. But um, I've been drinking them just out of the can, and I think... They're pretty good. They're weird because they don't have carbonation, but, like, I've been getting vanilla Pepsi, and I just think it's pretty good. So, anyway. Yeah. I just um, wanted to share that because I think this stuff is weird, and I wanted to talk about it. And this is, I guess, the podcast where I would do that. Yeah. Uh, especially since you're not going to be on the question bucket for Ghost Divers, where one of our recurring bits now just seems to be talking about weird sodas. Um. Oh, I guess I could put my water in this cup here. Here, I'm gonna do some mixology on the podcast. Some live Die Hard 3 solving a puzzle from Simon Says. Um, I have a leftover Starbucks cup that just had water in it, so I poured that water into my existing water. (laughs) And now I'm going to pour the Nitro Pepsi, I guess, into the... This was the real reason I wanted to do this on the podcast. I forgot about this part. Listen to this shit. Oh god. Why does it always do that? What happened? I didn't it, I didn't hear anything, I just heard you go, oh god. Well one, it makes the most satisfying like um um like opening sound of any soda ever. Oh I wonder if the, the like Discord thing that's supposed to remove like clicks and stuff, um cut that out. Probably. Because I was holding it right up to the microphone. Yeah. Anyway. I'm sure you so saw the, sound, the waveforms. The the sound of opening it is very satisfying. But it fizzes over, which is weird because there's no carbonation. You know? But it fizzes yeah. over or, when well, you open it. Because if it's nitro, there probably is, but it's not like... What? There, there's probably something that's like effervescent or bubbly in it, but it, it is not... Like, oh yeah, because when I when I poured it just now, it's got a head like it doesn't usually have, you know. Yeah. Um, but whatever it has is different than what is in. So like a normal soda, I think has like carbon dioxide or whatever. They just like literally yeah. put gas in it. Um, Whereas this probably has nitrogen, some like nitrogen mixture. That's yeah. at least what we have at work, you know. So. Yeah. Which is just gonna like create a different texture bubble um and also probably is why it it ends up being like i guess you can you can drink it and and confirm is it like does it feel a little bit bubblier now that you've poured it yeah Um, when i poured it it's a lot bubblier than it ever has been before um they gotta they gotta get the like they gotta team up with guinness or whatever because i think they guinness has the patent on it currently they have that thing where you can like 
I think they've done it with both cans and bottles, but there's like some mechanism that will properly mix it when you open it so that you actually get that like effect and you can drink it straight out of like a can or bottle because people kept not pouring Guinness and then being like, this is awful. Um, and it's because traditionally like you just have to pour it for the same reason. Um, huh. Um, yeah, I went to another coffee shop one time and they had like they had nitro cold brew, but instead of like we have it come out of a tap, what they had was they would add the cold brew into um Oh shit, sorry. Nora's playing Alien Isolation and something just scared me. Um, <laughs> um what <laughs> they had this other coffee shop I went to had the cold brew and they would put it into whipped cream canisters and like add the nitrogen and shake it up you know oh yeah um but i thought it was very lovely so um so yeah welcome everyone to our mukbang podcast where we just talk about the beverages that we've had recently um what we think of them um yeah. there's a nice tartness to the cider I'm enjoying that as I'm sipping away at this. Um, I guess while we're enjoying our drinks, uh, we can just talk about something else. Have you like watched any movies recently? Or I watched a couple movies. Yeah. Um, and I went into the spreadsheet and I ordered them by quality. So mm-hmm. not quality of stairwell, to be clear. But um... I thought of a way that we can we can alternate if you want to do that. Otherwise, you can Go just for do it. all of your movies. Okay. Go for it. Um. um... I will talk first about Chippendale Rescue Rangers, the 2022 uh, film. Um, so, people are familiar with Pop Town Funk. Um, yeah. We were supposed to watch Sid and Nancy um, when I came home from work one day. I just wasn't feeling it. I was just tired, you know? Yeah. Um, and so... We, then we were going to watch Morbius, because we were like, oh, we got to watch something bad. Let's watch Morbius. Morbin time. It was not Morbin time. We tried. <laughs> Plex did not cooperate. Um, Plex just, like, cut out all the sound from the movie about I, seven minutes in. Just, like, a little digression. Um, so I have two things that will get, like, video from my computer to my TV. And mm. I love, like, Plex as a thing that I can look at and see all my movies and they're all like laid out and everything. And it keeps Uh track of like what episode I'm on when I'm watching TV, which is really great because then I don't have to think about it. Um, And then I hit play on something and like 50% of the time, some shit happens. Yes. And the other thing I have on it is um, the, what is it? It's like some, it's, I think it's UMS. I forget what the first letter is. Universal. Universal Media Server. Um, and that one, I just see a bunch of folders. Uh, just yeah, shows it is me like folders. opening Windows Explorer on your damn TV. Yeah. and But then I open up the file, and it fucking plays the file every goddamn time. And I just <laughs> wish that, like, Plex could get whatever, like, UMS is doing to just play my goddamn file. It would uh, be just, fantastic. Just, like, get that in there. I, what is going on? <laughs> it's weird that Plex used to work better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it feels like every time I get a new update, Plex breaks in a new and exciting way, and it's impossible to troubleshoot. 
Um, and I like recently found some little weird corner that was extremely hard to find of the settings on my TV that has like fixed a lot of the issues we were having. Cause it used to be like, you would come over to watch a movie for stairwells and I'd start it up and half of the time, at least we're watching something foreign and it doesn't default and there's no way to just tell it to default to putting subs on, which is also annoying. Um, mm. whereas in universal media server, I just put in always do subs and it does it for me. But anyway, um, so then we'll like go and we'll turn it on. But then since you turned on subs, it needs to like re-encode the thing that it's sending. Cause it's, it's literally just sending a video where they are like burning the subs in to the file that they're sending to the TV. Um, right. and it just crashed it every single time, but I finally figured out how to, to fix that. But, um, yeah, it's just Getting like, make nerves. it work, make it work. Plex. Like <laughs> I just want to watch it on my TV. I was going to watch Touch of Evil today, and I spent so long messing around with Plex that while I was messing around with Plex, I idly opened up the torrent site and was like, oh, they did a 4K uh, version of Touch of Evil since last I downloaded Touch of Evil. I guess I'll delete the one I had and download the 4K one, and I guess I'll just watch a different movie today. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, so Morbius did not work for us. Uh, and the the almighty algorithm is just on the home screen of our um, TV, and the algorithm said, "Hey, do you want to watch Chippendale Rescue Rangers, the wacky new like crossover IP parody Disney film that honestly, truly is not that far removed from like Scary Movie Three or like Epic Movie." <laughs> like honestly, I blockbuster films have weirdly wrapped back around to to that <laughs> of all things. Yeah. Um uh Chippendale is awful. <laughs> One, John Mulaney and, and Andy Samberg are not trying. <laughs> they are speaking in their normal voices. Uh they don't care. <laughs> They're getting a check. Um, and two, it's, like, just as bad as Space Jam about, like, like, when I was talking about Space Jam 2, I was all, I was talking about, like, there's all these WB movies that are sort of, like, crossing over all their IPs and doing these plots about how isn't it silly to, to, um, like, like this? Like, isn't this bad? Isn't this all, like, corporate trash that's just, like you know, um, stupid and bad. Um, and, and I was attributing a lot of that to WB. This is the same movie as Space Jam 2. The same film. <laughs> um, like, it is also, like, that. It's It takes a slightly weirder, more sinister direction, honestly, that's got, like, weird anti-China vibes which don't surprise you when you know that this is like a Disney movie but also surprise you when you know that this is a Disney movie yeah um, so Nora and I, I I assume on Pop Town or on Export will get more into like the politics of Chippendale um <laughs> <laughs> we do stupid podcasts on this network we anyway, do continue. stupid fucking podcasts like <laughs> so we'll nora and i will go somewhat more in depth on chippendale i assume i just wanted to get it out there that this is like 
because <clears throat> Nora and I are now an expert in this field of like we watched Space Jam, we watched Ready Player One, we watched yeah. Chippendale. Um, there's there's more, I'm sure. Um, I, I thought this was the <sighs> Space Jam might be the worst of the bunch just because LeBron can't act, but like LeBron not being able to act might might on the right day be more charming than Andy Samberg and John Mulaney knowing how to act and just not doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, th- I, I think Space Jam 2 might be the worst one of these, but Chippendale has really given it a run for its money. Chippendale is like, we could, we could be pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's so, oh, I, one thing I w- want to complain about, um, <laughs> Before I finish up, because I didn't want to go this long on even, but <clears throat> um, so one of the like characters in this film is quote unquote ugly Sonic, which is like Sonic, um, from that first trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie before yeah. um they like redid the design to be more appealing, and I just think. <laughs> I think it's really fucked up that all those people worked 70-hour weeks and then lost their jobs the day the movie came out. And now they're just getting, like, mocked for, like, our entertainment in a Disney film. I think it's fucked up. (laughs) It was fucked up that those people got fired. It's fucked up that they had to work all that overtime. It's fucked up that, like, the suits were like, this is the Sonic design. Because, like, I'm sure all the animators working on that have a good eye for visuals and knew that this was a really bad sonic design (laughs) i'm sure it was not the animators who wanted to put that out there so it's fucked up that they had to do all that and they lost their jobs and now they're just like a the butt of a stupid joke in a stupid fucking chippendale reboot (laughs) yeah um that's my spiel i'm done with chippendale now (laughs) um continuing on about at this point, Disney, although at the time it was made, this wasn't Disney, right? Thor- I believe I believe Marvel was owned by Disney, but Paramount was still making the movies. I don't remember when. I'll Google it. Okay. Well, so Emily's been continuing watching through all the MCU again, basically. Um, and so at this point, she's watching whatever one comes after the Avengers chronologically, like release date wise um like currently right now while i'm recording this but um that does mean that i saw bits and pieces of captain america uh thor was the one that i watched the like most um intently um and also uh the avengers were were the the three ones um and i'm not really going to talk about captain america or the avengers because i was like pretty checked out during them um especially captain america because i remember really not liking that movie when it came out um and not being oh, that's like my favorite <laughs> not being that interested in in revisiting it um i think some of it is that i just like have absolutely no affection for that character whatsoever um mm. and also like i typed thor into wikipedia and i got the the norse god thor <laughs> um and also there's a there's a there's a like structure there there is a myth that exists in uh America about like the Americans fighting the Nazis um that is this like 
oh, we are like the real freedom fighters, which is just like a fucked up thing if you know the history oh, of yeah. anything America's ever done. Absolutely. Um, it, like, it is propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Like, killing the Nazis are probably one of the best things that they did do, but it was not for any, like, good ideological reason. <laughs> yeah. Even. <laughs> it was just, um, hey, they're muscling in on our turf. <laughs> yeah. No, literally up until that point, America, lots of Americans were real good and chummy with the Nazis. Um, yeah. But anyway. Uh, Walt and so, Disney. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like. The, the construction of the Captain America, especially that one, which is like the, oh, he's fighting the Nazis, um, is just something that like particularly grates on me. Uh, I think is another reason why like that movie just, I had no interest in really revisiting it. Um, and The Avengers was one that um, I was kind of watching, but also I just feel like it's, it's a lot longer. Um, Emily had more trouble watching. I think she watched it over like three nights because... One of the nights was the night that we watched The Third Man, and so she only watched, like, a little bit after we were done. Um, and so some of that just, it being broken up makes it harder for me to, like, track how a movie feels to me when I have to, like, drop it and pick it up over and over again. Um, and I was also just reading Paradise Kiss, so um, it was just a lot of action scenes, and I was like, I'm not a huge fan of this, but I'm also mm. not watching that closely. Uh, but I did watch Thor, because I remember it being my favorite back in the day when I was actually watching these. Um, <coughs> and the part that I like about it is such a smaller part of it than I remember be it being, which is that the part that I like is the part where Thor is this weird fish out of water who is this, like, Norse god who has come to uh -huh. the mortal realm. Um, and it's just, like, I'm just a fan of fish out of water stories. I think they can be really fun. Um, and It's, like, less of a part of the movie than you think yeah, it is. Yeah, and I, I just wish that it was more. There's, like, especially because there are, there are elements of it that are, like, veering into like romance story stuff that feels very different than a lot of the other MCU stuff that is going to include romance that I remember like this, like it watching Thor again reminded me of like, at one time the MCU did kind of feel like there was different movies that were in different genres, but they were all kind of in this universe, but there wasn't like this whole project around it in quite the same way that there is now. Like it was the beginnings of it, but they didn't know what was what it was going to be. And it hadn't become so like massive and unwieldy. Um, and also there was just more space for like the movies to be slightly different and weirder in different ways. Uh, so that was one of the things that I appreciated watching it. I'm still, I forget what I gave it on Letterboxd, but it was like three stars at most or something. Um, but I did just appreciate that, like, oh, there is this, like, little fish-out-of-water romance, blah, 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 part of the story. I wish that it was a lot more of it. Um, I was kind of bored during a lot of the actual superhero stuff. Um, but it, it did just, like, give me... And also, it was just, like, striking to me how much of it was actual sets, which I've been noticing throughout all of these movies, but, like in part because I was paying the closest attention to Thor and, and watching a lot of like, no, they are like, literally these are just like uh, a set where like they're in a d diner. Here's like kind of a wild West set almost that they've set up for like this fight or whatever. Um, right. There was like so much less of like the actual space that they're being in being CG. And even when they're in, um, what do they call the, the realm of the gods in, in the, in Thor, the comic book. I'm um, Asgard. 
Asgard. Okay. Um, I was trying to remember if they like call it Asgard or if they call it like um, Valhalla or something. But um, no, no. Um, I know too yeah. much Thor lore. I I almost started explaining, and then I realized you wouldn't care. <laughs> well. I know like Norse mythology lore. So anyway, I I um, know Jack Kirby shit. <laughs> the other thing is that I was going to say Ausgarder and I'm like, okay, it's not that because <laughs> that's yeah. me saying it in actual uh, old Icelandic. But anyway, um, like that, there's definitely more CG going on, and yet there's still like this is the thing. I put like a C plus with a question mark because again, I didn't watch like all of it intently where I was always going to catch all of the stairs but like there are stairs in like the main set for for um asgard and people are on it all the time and stuff because it's actual fucking stairs even though some of the backdrop is like cg in like oh we're in some weird fantasy space um and it just made me miss like sets and movies uh like in this kind of style of movie watching it um that's like been the saddest thing about emily doing this is that like watching these older mcu movies a lot of them are really mid but i'm just like i like when i was watching these back then i didn't know what this was going to become and like Mm. now part of it is like wistful being like oh it hasn't like gone through the machine fully yet (laughs) yeah um and some of it is also just being like i can see where the machine is starting they're cging in backgrounds here um, they are like doing CG landscapes for this because it's so much easier than shooting, like going out and shooting an actual landscape. Um, and it's just going to increasingly become more and more of that. So, um, but yeah, that was Thor. That's my um, little MCU corner. I feel like this is going to be ongoing cause this is Emily's project now. So I'm going to have to continually half talk about MCU stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for my next movie, um, last night I was laying on the couch. It was getting pretty late. I kind of wanted to watch like a good movie, but I was worried I was going to fall asleep. I actually didn't. So I probably could have watched something better, but, um, I, I wanted to watch a good movie. I didn't want to fall asleep. I didn't want it to be too good though. Cause I knew I might fall asleep. So I put on seven in or seven. Some people say, Um, (laughs) um, which I think is a good movie. I had a good time. I'm like lower on it today, looking back at it than I was last night. Last night, I was just like, oh, this is fun, stupid movie. Um, That's that's the thing is is much like many David Fincher projects. um, I think it's a pretty dumb movie. And this movie has always been sold to me as like, oh, it's so genius and and edgy and cool. And I'm just like, it's very silly. (laughs) It's extremely silly. It's also like, I don't I don't know anything about David Fincher. I I don't know how he got his start in the film industry, but it is like one of the most. I went to film school and I learned three things and I'm going to put those three things into the movie now. (laughs) <laughs> I learned that you need a a like wise black cop and a like kind of you know he's gonna fly off the handle young white cop. I I learned that one of them needs to be a week away from retirement. <laughs> I <laughs> do you want to join Nora? Yeah, I need to tell you how 
David Fincher started his career. I know, I, I know this part that you're going to tell me, but please. He's only directed one movie before Seven. Yes. Alien 3. Yes. And I, I know the whole thing where he, like, had such a bad time on Alien 3 that he almost, like, quit film. Well, he disowned that film and refused to provide a, quote, director's cut. Yeah. Or, any, or to return to it when they decided to make one because it was a nightmare and he hated it. Um, yeah. I knew that part. I just heard you say you didn't know where he started, and I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> What's that calling in the vents? <laughs> it's the alien. <laughs> anyway, um, um, but the, the, the funniest thing about Seven is, is, like, how much it's a, like, I bought a book on screenwriting, and they gave me this, like, formula for structuring the movie, and that is the formula I'm going to do. There's going to be, like, a scene where they meet, and then there's going to be an intense investigation scene, and then there's going to be a scene where they go back to the precinct, and then they're going to talk about the themes, and then an investigation scene, and then a themes scene, and then an investigation scene, and then a theme scene, and they will just ratchet up intention until the end. <laughs> yeah. Um... David That's Fincher. He was allowed to do anything and not <laughs> be constantly meddled with by, you know. Shoo. Get alien. off the podcast. Alien. Get off the podcast. Shoo. Shoo. <laughs> I'm shooting my flamethrower at you. <laughs> um, You're getting back in the vents. <laughs> uh, David Fincher always reminds me a little bit of Christopher Nolan. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In, in like. One, there's, like, I, I think a certain level of similarity of, like, oh, like, a lot of their movies being essentially blockbusters, but that are, like, gussied up with this veneer of being, like, darker and grittier and deeper than your average blockbuster, um, in a way where then there's also the, both of them, like, have the fan who really likes these movies, and sometimes you talk to them and you're, like, you just like don't watch old movies and stuff. Like yeah. you just you your like perspective is so limited and so you think that this is like the the greatness. Um yes. this is like the height of of cinema and it's just like yeah, the, like some of those movies are like good and fun but like watch more movies. <laughs> if you, if you read the Wikipedia page for 7 and if you like Ask David Fincher about it. He's like, I just wanted to make a noir movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's all he's trying to do. Oh, I forgot to put something else because I I forgot to log it on my um letterboxed. But I, I oh. watched in the heat of the I rewatched in the heat of the night this week, which is a great comparison point for this movie. So, yeah. and I should talk a little longer about in the heat of the night in some way. But like in the heat of the night. Um, is a, like, classic, I want to say either 66 or 68, um, noir film about Sidney Poitier, um, like, investigating a murder in a Mississippi town, and he's, um, being confronted with a great deal of racism as he does so, um, and has a very similar structure, you know, of, um, like, you get the investigation scene, and then you get the, like, talking about the theme scene. Um, it, they're very, like, I, I am I am 100% certain that, like, In the Heat of the Night is, if not one of the films, like, the, the exact genre of film that, like, 
David Fincher is pulling from. And I wouldn't be shocked if he like watched In the Heat of the Night while writing this movie. You know, like there is such a like kinship between them. But the thing about <clears throat> In the Heat of the Night that makes it incredible. One, it's incredible because like uh, Sidney Poitier is one of the greatest actors who's ever lived. Um, and putting on like one of his best performances. Um, but like the things that are like the, 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 the thematic like texture of that movie is about like, is about real stuff. (laughs) Like it's about like racism in the South and like, you know, um, racism in the South, like sort of being a product of like, white poverty and also being a product of like just legitimate hate. Like, you know, some of that can be like, you can point to this like external influence. And some of that is like, no, these people are awful people, you know, (laughs) who who think and believe awful things. Um, uh, And the way that in the heat of the night can like stare at like what racism is and like, um, is really striking. I think it's in a fucking incredible film. I'd love to do, do it for um, this podcast someday. This is like my second time seeing it. And it's just risen in my estimation pretty considerably. Um, the stuff that seven's about is like Morgan Freeman is a week away from retirement. And he keeps doing these scenes about how the city is shit. Every, everything just sucks. Now I saw, I see these horrible crimes every day and, like humanity is just awful and will always be awful and has always been awful. And, and, and it's only getting worse. And, yeah. and Brad Pitt is like, I think people are good sometimes and it takes good men like us because the cops are good men. Um, it takes good men like us to, to show that. And then they both are like staring into the void of this, like really horrific killer, which also, Something I should touch on. Um, this movie features Kevin Spacey. Uh, I remember <laughs> about five minutes before he shows up in the movie, I was like, oh, right. The reason I've never watched this before is that Kevin Spacey is in this. Mm-hmm. I, I just kind of forgot that he's in this. I put it on and then I get like halfway through the movie and I'm like, oh, right. I forgot that that shitbag's in this. Um, yeah. Um. So... <clears throat> But I think that, like, Brad Pitt and, um, like, Morgan Freeman both just represent, like, different forms of, like, 90s American nihilism of just, like, like, I think it is equally empty and vapid to say people are good. Like, the the, the ending, (laughs) the ending is so bad. (laughs) The, The final line of the movie is Morgan Freeman uh, doing this voiceover where he says, Ernest Hemingway said, like, the world is good and worth fighting for. And I at least agree with the second part or something. And it's just, like, totally empty. What does fighting for it mean? Like, what, <laughs> what is, what does it mean? Like, like, the, the film has no concept of where crime comes from. It's just that crime happens and, and, and evil things, like, happen and come up from out of the 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 pits of hell i guess i don't i don't know like it's just vapid and empty and i think that like brad pitt's character being like oh but 
things are good sometimes, I think is just an equally like nihilistic like way of like, well, everything sucks, but I'm going to have a positive outlook about it. But yeah. I think he's equally nihilistic. And I think it's like a very like stupid movie. <laughs> <laughs> um. But also it looks very pretty. The, the, the pacing is good. The, the, like dialogue is just snappy enough. Like I, I like these two actors, you know, like I had a good time. I don't know. Yeah, I it, it is one of these movies too that um I don't know, like having for me having studied some like uh nihilism, the the there's like a uh surface level version of it that is just like man everything's fucking meaningless that's like no you're just depressed my guy <laughs> yeah um whereas like there's a another form that involves like um going from like life is meaningless and then having like a uh um deeper investigation of what that is and like trying to explore like uh, what exists then if like life is meaningless um, that I think can like often arrive at something that is like not just this like everything sucks or whatever whereas like I feel like I, it's been a while since I've watched Seven but I feel like it's like more just that surface level like yeah um, yes it's very surface level yeah like there can be horrible serial killers so like what's the purpose of anything um, rather than like I think Sonatina is a movie that is like deeply nihilistic, but is like digging into that more and investigating that more um, and arriving at something that is not just this like purely like, um, I don't know, almost like edgy, like, man, everything sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think like seven, um, seven, like Kevin Spacey serial killer character believes in a higher power. And, like, that sets him apart from Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt's characters who, um, like, talk about how, like, don't, don't ever speak in religious terms. And I think that's, like, intentional. I think, like, these are two people who don't believe in a higher power. And I think because of that, like, Brad Pitt is like, well, there's no, there's no, like, higher power. And so I just have to do the best I can with the time I have. And, and Morgan Freeman is like... I don't have anything to believe in, but like, I don't know. I had that sort of like crisis in my life when I was 14, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then went through a phase of my life where I like very deeply believed in a higher power. And now I'm in a different phase of my life where I, you know, don't know how I feel about that, but believe all sorts of other things about like, you know, like i don't know it just feels like a very like it feels very juvenile and also like i guess you know to give david fincher some credit like i i went through that at 14 because i read fight club when i was 14 and was like you know very yeah. moved by fight club at you know being a, a 14 year old boy at the time you know yeah um I just grew out of it in a way that, like, I am not keeping up with David Fincher's filmography, but I don't think that, like, 
the ideas he's playing with in the in those first couple movies have evolved a great deal since then. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that's my seven thoughts. Um. um and then I I think I'm gonna reserve in the heat of the night thoughts beyond what I've already said because I think I think we could get a really good discussion out of it. I that was a similar thing where um I was like on the couch and was like worried I was gonna fall asleep so I put on something I'd already seen before um liked it better than I remembered um the the blu-ray I got from Criterion looked fucking incredible um there's some really good special features on there that I want to spend some time with um I think I think we could have a better discussion if we both have seen it and could like really get in depth on it. Um, yeah. And I think maybe I want to try and like pencil that in to talk about it soon because yeah. Um, do you want to rate the stairwell? Do a preliminary rating. Um, for seven. Um, Oh, I should say for Chippendale F, you know, stairs for seven. I gave it an A. Um, there were a lot of stairs, they all looked very good. There wasn't the iconic stairwell shot to me, you know? Yeah. The first time that stairs showed up in the movie, about like 40 minutes in, I remember texting you. I was like, oh, there's some stairs. I don't want to forget this because these are some pretty good stairs. From that point onward, there's a lot of stairs all through the movie, but none of them really truly stand out to me, you know? Yeah. Um. I guess, I guess the one you would say is like... um that Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are walking up the stairs in the police department or in the courthouse, I think. And then like, they're like halfway up the stairs and Kevin Spacey's character arrives to turn himself in and he's covered in blood and all this. Um, That's like, I guess the iconic stairwell scene because they're like halfway up and they turn around to see, Oh, there's the killer right in front of us. Um, Yeah. Uh, but yeah, nothing nothing that really put it over the top. I gave it an A because it put in a lot of good effort, not because there was something that really blew me away. Um, in the Heat of the Night um, takes place in a hot Mississippi summer. <laughs> uh, a lot of one-story buildings because yeah. this is 1967 and not a lot of places have central air. It's yeah. a plot point that the police department doesn't have central air, in fact, so... I don't think there were any stairs in this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Um, are you ready for me to reveal the secret of why I haven't watched more movies this week? Hit me. I watched the first eight parts of Twin Peaks, The Return. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm almost halfway through i have one How more episode like of my room uh man so one of the things that i i wanted to say after i revealed this to you i'm like sad that we can't record this in person because i wanted to see your reaction live but um <laughs> uh one of the things I was wondering I was, is like, do we want to have like a discrete point here where we will like clip out the audio and put it after Bella Lugosi's dead 
in case I'm saying this specifically Let's... because I think that like our audience has enough overlap with totally reprise and yes, a lot of people watching or like listening to that have already watched all of Twin Peaks, but I'm sure there are some people who are going through Twin Peaks along with that podcast right now. Um, mm-hmm. And so one, I don't want to like spoil big things for them. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's, I don't think we can or should go long because it's been five years yeah, and my memory <laughs> is hazy. So I don't want to accidentally say something that gives it away for you. But let's do that. Let's. I, I'm going to mark it. I think you're editing this, but I'm going to yeah. mark it as well, just in case. And listeners, um, if you want to hear the Twin Peaks spoiler talk, we'll put that after Bella Lugosi's dead. Uh, and here, you're just going to probably hear an awkward cut. Yeah, I'll like put in some music. listeners we're back um from the spoiler zone after the credits 
<laughs> it's gonna be um, a pretty long after credit section. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we went, we went, we went long. I don't know how long because I had to make a couple mo- marks for coughs and typing, but uh, we went long. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I watched the lady from Shanghai. Um. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> I forgot that you had another thing to talk about before we got to yeah. the third man. Um, this yeah. this is one of the few that I haven't seen. I don't think. Um, I was gonna watch Touch of Evil today. Um, because that is a more like universally beloved Orson Welles film. Yeah. Um, he writes and directs that one and features in it. Um, he writes and directs Lady from Shanghai and stars in it. I don't know that he stars in. Touch of Evil. I have no idea, honestly. Um, the main gonna watch thing, Touch of Evil. It's been a long time instead. since I watched um, Touch of Evil, um, and it was actually specifically in my period where I was watching a bunch of Marlene Dietrich. Um, but I think mm-hmm. Orson Welles is is also an actor in it. But the thing is, I don't remember a ton of like the actual plot of Touch of Evil because it blends with a lot of other um, Marlene Dietrich films that i've seen or i guess marlena would be the the german but um yeah i think i'd always heard it marlena yeah um um <clears throat> but yeah i uh, um i'm reasonably certain not a hundred percent and now i want to check myself before i wreck myself but um repertory screenings did lady from shanghai pretty recently right uh, yeah, yeah like a couple episodes ago in march um so, I don't want to get too in-depth on it. I actually haven't um, had time because I finished watching the movie at four and then I had another podcast and some other shit to do. So, I haven't had time to listen to their episode yet. I'm going to probably tomorrow. Um, but uh, I thought Lady from Shanghai is very good. I thought, um, <laughs> one, <laughs> things to recommend this movie. Uh, good noir movie. Two, um incredible ending uh it, it it sort of drags a little bit i think in the middle but like the ending like the last five minutes of that movie are like the best last five minutes of any movie <laughs> you know i will like put them up against any movie that ending is great <laughs> yeah and three to get you through the parts that do drag a little bit orson wells for no discernible reason is doing a really bad irish accent through this entire film <laughs> Uh, four, Rita Hayworth is incredible. Five, um, even when he's doing a bad Irish accent, Orson Welles is still, still Orson Welles. He's still, you know, heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> um, it, it, it's a, it, it is of the Orson Welles movies I've seen. Um, it is like the least, you know. Um, like I would, I would even put this behind, like. The Trial, which is a movie where he doesn't act at all. Um, yeah. But um, I I had a really good time with it. It's pretty brief. Um, and um, it is maybe the best. Um, it is not. It's not an adaptation of Gatsby. And it's not even like a pastiche of Gatsby. But it is playing in a very similar space of, like, let's watch these rich, decadent assholes, like, ruin each other's lives for no reason. Um, 
in a way that really evoked Gatsby for me. And like, I like that Baz Luhrmann Gatsby movie, but this is much truer to the spirit of like what Gatsby is to me <laughs> in some yeah. ways. And that's one of my favorite novels. So I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of this movie. Um, um, just like, let's watch these rich people be miserable for no reason. It is all self-inflicted. Like yeah. every, every like bit of depression and sorrow that all of these people are going through, it, it is all be- like on them. You know, <laughs> there is no like external reason. They are, these are, these are unforced errors. Um, so yeah um i should i should watch it sometime i feel like i need to make like a more concerted effort to just sit down and watch through a bunch of orson welles directed stuff um because it's never me too that's not a thing that i ever did there's like various orson welles stuff that i've watched over the years um but I, I think some of it is like I watched Citizen Kane and back when I watched it, everyone was just like, well, this was like his good one. And then it was all downhill from here. Um, and so all of his other ones that kind of came to more organically from just like, oh, it came up in a, you know, like they were going to show it at a film club or, um, oh, I like heard about it and it just sounded interesting. I'll guess I'll check that one out. Or as I said, with Touch of Evil, it was specifically Marlena De- uh, Dietrich that I was like watching it for (laughs) so Mm -hmm. um but it's also a thing where i'm like i feel like the like citizen kane is just such a great movie but i feel like people being like well that was this one good one is such a disservice um even if it is maybe his best but yeah i feel like Um, that is honestly a little bit more open to contention than than like (laughs) i think I would say Citizen Kane is his best movie of what I've seen. I don't think it is, like, so much better than the Magnificent Ambersons that, like, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't say that, like, he fell off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, al- I also, like, you know, I've never seen F for Fake, which I know is, like, a big heavy hitter in his catalog, you know? Like, yeah. I know that that is, like, a thing that people love, um... Um, um, but yeah, it sounds fun. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to get too much more into Lady from Shanghai, partly because I know repertory screenings, uh, recently covered it. And partly because in the way of some noir movies of this time, the plot is so convoluted. Like, like to tell you anything that happens in this movie i would have to be like okay so there's this one rich guy and he double crosses this person who double crosses that person who actually isn't double crossing this person because they were in love with them the whole time or whatever you know like it is so like (laughs) like it is impossible to do a five sentence summary of that movie because the the whole like status quo of the movie changes from one scene to the next yeah (laughs) it is very propulsive in that way um really good really really good looks fantastic um in the way that like so many wells movies do um speaking of movies that look fantastic and that also include orson wells but not as director (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, let's talk about the third man. Best movie ever made. 
Arguably, yeah. It's the best movie ever made. Um, I don't I don't fully believe that, but it is a really fucking good movie. It's a really fucking um, good movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen this movie before? Uh, yes, I have. So, notably, this and last episode are one year of the podcast, like... Let's celebrate. Let's watch the two movies that we watched before we started the podcast. Um, and this mm-hmm. one really, really almost was episode one. Um, yeah. I think I was very close to convincing you to to go set up your mic and hit record. And um, I don't remember. I was so sleepy. Yeah, I think you were just sleepy. I think you were just a sleepy <laughs> little cat. Um, and I was like, I guess I can't argue with that, but also like what a banger to start the podcast with. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think starting with the hunger worked out well. Yeah, it did. Um, <laughs> uh, still, God, um, do, do we want to like summarize this movie? Yeah, I have the problem, uh, a classic stairwells problem where I've watched like two or three movies since I watched this movie, and so now I'm like, what the fuck happens? Yeah, well, I've seen this movie many times, (laughs) so the other thing is that like, this is my favorite noir, Uh, it's the second Blu-ray that I ever got, the first one being Pale Flower. Um, It's like a very watchable movie, I can definitely see how this becomes someone's like, oh, when I'm sick I put on Aliens, like, oh, when I'm sick I put on The Third Man, because it's just like... You know, the, just fun. <laughs> one of the things that I think is incredible about The Third Man is that since I have watched it a number of times, I think, like, you know, the first time I watched it, I was watching it very intently. I think the second time I watched it, I kind of, like, had just gotten the Blu-ray and put it on and was, like, not really paying attention other than just being, like, I just want to see how good this looks on Blu-ray. Um, and... That time, I really was not following the plot, and yet so much of, like, what's happening on the screen is just, like, fun to look at, and, like, everybody mm-hmm. is just, like, uh, energetic and charismatic, and, like, the banter is good, where you don't really need to be following what the plot is to, like, know what, yeah, like, to, to like, be engaged in the film, because so much of what's engaging about it to me, I think, is just, like, almost as moment-to-moment, like... Everybody is this just is like on their A game. It feels like, um, and like this is all. This is the space that like Casablanca operates in for me. Yeah, you know where I I've seen Casablanca so many times that I don't really need to watch it. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I will. I will give a summary, which is that um, <laughs> wait, wait, Joseph Cotton's. Ca- hmm. Can I do the summary? Because I want to. I guess you can do it, but I, I thought of a funny way to do it. No, no, no. Go, go. I was just going to do it to get it out of the way. So if you've got something, yeah. do it. Um, so Joseph Cotton's character, whose name is Holly Martins, um, and, you know, commented on multiple times about his, his kind of fruity name. They don't say it that way, but... <laughs> um, so uh, he shows up um, in um, Vienna... Uh, that's where it's all set, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and you know, it it is currently being occupied by um, like what the Americans, the British, uh, the Italians, and I forget what is it the Germans, I think. Yes. Um, and so there's like different quarters that are occupied by the different um nations, and then there's like a center quarter where each police patrol has four officers, one from each nation, and they like can barely speak each other's language. Um, 
anyway, I just think that's a fun detail. But so um, Joseph Cotton shows up and is looking for his ex-lover, um, whose name is Harry Lime, uh, and finds out that he is dead. Um, talks to basically like the the porter there or the you know he's like some guy who basically works in the building. Um, I don't remember exactly what his role is uh, but he's this I like think he's the porter yeah. yeah he's like this older german man um and he says that um when he, you know he saw the accident he was hit by a car um there were three three men who carried him over to this uh you know other area where he but he was already dead then his head just like the way that his head was there's no way he could have been alive um and then, like, his doctor came or whatever and, and confirmed it. Um, but then the official story that was told to the police by the people who were there was that there was two people who carried him, both of whom were friends of Harry Lyme, um, and then, of course, his doctor who, who came and confirmed the death. So there's a third man. Point at Yo. the screen. Um, Pointing at the screen. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> so uh, Joseph Cotton... Uh, concerned with, uh, you know, how the name of his ex-lover, uh, or, you know, perhaps a estranged lover trying to come back and, and, uh, repair things or whatever, Harry Lime, um, is, you know, being besmirched or, like, being investigated, there's these bad things being said about him, and he's trying to clear his name, figure out exactly what's going on, um, and also perhaps hopeful that, uh, the man he loves is still alive. Um, in the process ends up talking to, uh, a girl who, um, Harry Lyme was presumably dating or, or having some sort of fling with, um, and also kind of has a little romantic tension with, um, is talking to one of the cops who, uh, you know, is very British and smarmy. Um, there's some great scenes between them. And talks to to um, both uh, or talks to um, one of the friends who carried Harry Lyme's body, supposedly, um, as well as I think the doctor. I think those are the two main ones that he talks to. Oh, yeah. and then also briefly talks to the the Romanian, who's the the other guy who carried the body. Um, in the process, does uh, once he he goes to. So he talks to the the man, and the man's got a dog, like one of the men who who was the friend who carried him. Then when he goes to talk to the the doctor, he also has a dog, and it's because later on he's going to go back to the house that they both live in, where one of them is wearing a bathrobe, and they're like, and he's basically like, "Hey, I know what's up <laughs> with Harry Lime. I know he's alive." Because <laughs> in the process of it, he ends up meeting Harry Lime, who is played by Orson Welles, and one of the greatest reveals. Um, it's just fantastic. The pan up to oh, his so smiling good. face. Um, he's so charming, and they they literally shoot him the same way that they shoot Volley, the the woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna quick interject here. Like, there's a classic. Um, I associate it most strongly with Casablanca, of course, but like. This is like all over like classic Hollywood stuff where when you meet the um, like love interest in the movie, um, you get this like soft focus, you get a really high key light, you maybe don't even get a like fill light at all. Because like, like Joseph Cotton's face is always lit with like almost more fill light than like key that, that like really shows all the like 
man, we all just lived through a war. Like you can see it in his face, you know, like yeah. you can see the, the, the tears of time <laughs> in Joseph Cotton's face in this movie. Um, and, and the, the woman in this film, um, uh, Schmidt, uh, Anna Schmidt, I think, is that right? Maybe. Um, I don't know. Volley, the, the and- actress who plays her. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, um, she gets the like you know soft focus like perfect beautiful skin treatment. Yeah, the, like, this wasn't always done, but the the like uh, short hands nice people will refer to this shot is the Vaseline on the lens where you would like literally smear yeah. some Vaseline on it where like it just could not properly focus at all. Um, yes, um, and like she's given that treatment all through this movie. And then in Orson Welles' first shot, and basically every other shot after that, he is also given this. Yes. I just really need to highlight this. This is incredibly key for like how we understand this movie. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. So yeah, he he uh, encounters Harry Lime. They talk a little bit. Um. And there's sort of a chase, and and Lime shakes Martin's, uh, Cotton's character. Um. And then uh you know this police officer who um cotton has been talking to um is like also talking about the horrible deeds that he did where uh he he got penicillin i think stole it from the military hospital and then diluted it i think it was stealing how they got it um and Basically, all of the stuff gets uncovered as it goes on. They find that the the actual body that was the man who was killed and was buried um, was actually not Harry Lyme. He was the third man who was carrying the body. It was the doctor at the field hospital who was getting the penicillin for them to like cover this up. Basically, they killed him, um, and he was who was buried in the coffin. Um, and then, of course, now that Harry Lyme is officially dead, he's like able to to move more discreetly. Um, and uh there's this famous scene where they go to a ferris wheel uh so romantic and they write up and have a conversation where um harry lime is basically like look from up here they just look like ants tell me you wouldn't like crush some of those ants for like you know thousands of dollars twenty thousand dollars um this like just extreme like uh capitalist let the people die to make money for me. Um, and, uh, then Joseph Cotton goes to the police and basically says like, Hey, I saw Harry Lyme. I'll tell you everything I know. I'll help you get him. Um, if you will, uh, let, uh, Schmidt Volley's character, uh, Lita Volley. Um, which I think in the film, they just credited her, her as Volley. I don't think they do her first name at all. Huh. Um, when we were watching it, I was waiting to, cause I was trying to remember her first name and I just felt like I never saw it. Um, but anyway, um, and like on the posters, it just says volley, but anyway, um, hmm. yeah, she, uh, was born in Czechoslovakia. Oh, Russians, not Germans are the other people occupying, um, Vienna at this time. Um, that's who the, the fourth group was. So the Russians want to deport her because, um, she was born in Czechoslovakia and she had uh, faked papers from Harry Lyme. It's revealed in the the course of it. There's a part where she like talks about how he did that for her. Um, and she gets found out and the Russians want to take her in and the cops are going to let him 
do it. And he's basically like, hey, I'll tell you how to find Harry Lyme if you let her go. Um, but then she kind of figures out what's going on, that he's a snitch and has turned in Harry. Um, and so she ends up not going on the train, goes to talk to Joseph Cotton's character. Both of them see Harry Lyme who shows up, but this he's waiting for the sting operation um, at this cafe where they you know, where she walks in. Um, and so she realizes what's happening and leaves, um, and kind of like shuns him. Uh, there's a really extensive, absolutely gorgeous running through sewers chase where they finally, um, Harry Lyme is finally shot and killed. Um, and they bury him for him for a second time. Um, and, uh, after the, the funeral, um, the cop is giving Joseph Cotton's character a ride to the airport and he sees Vali's character walking and says, Hey, let me out. Um, and he's like, Hey, you're going to miss your flight home. That was like p- also part of our agreement. Uh, and then he waits and we get a fairly lengthy set like sequence or shot of just like Vali walking towards the camera and you think maybe they're going to meet and talk and then she just walks past and keeps moving. And then he just kind of looks dejected and like kicks the dirt. And then the end, the movie's over. <laughs> so fucking good. It's so fucking good. Um, it's fantastic. I forgot that, uh, that volley is in, um, Suspiria. Yeah. I remembered that when we, when we watched it, um, she's the, the like older dance instructor. Yes. Um, Anyway, uh, a thing that I did when I did that synopsis was make the the homosexual stuff really obvious. Um, This has actually been like, I feel like pointing out how gay stuff is that's happening in The Third Man uh, is like very, very recent. Um, It's very hard to find any articles where people are talking about this, um, aside from like one of the oldest ones that I've been able to find, which is one of the ones that has like, is not just pointing at the same stuff I'm pointing at of like, oh, here's Martins and like the way that they're shooting like Orson Welles is like kind of romantic and like, why is he going around? Um, and then also the fact that the, the guy with the dog, the, the friend with the dog and then the doctor live together and that there's various moments where that kind of gets like hinted at and revealed to us. Um, mm-hmm. or again, could be just friends in that shot that he could just be visiting at the moment where they come, but he comes, both of them are there at the house. The guy with the dog seems to be wearing a, like a, uh, um, you know, bathrobe or something in that scene. <laughs> anyway. And earlier in earlier, he comes to the doctor's house and, and the dog is there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, and he's also, like, Hey, that's that guy's dog. <laughs> also the actors playing him pretty faggy. <laughs> yes. Uh, about as faggy as you could probably play them at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like expect to get it on American theaters. But anyway, um, this one article uh, I think is interesting because they found parts um, in, so there was a uh, memo that was sent um, just before shooting began in October, 1948, where one of the producers, Selznick sent this memo saying uh, to halt production. Uh, it ended up not being uh, halted, but it seems like some changes may have happened um, after this 
where he said, what on earth motivates Martins in his curious and passionate interest in clearing up the reputation of a dead man who he hasn't seen for 10 years? The only conclusion I can draw from it is that they slept together. And I don't mean slept all the way through Etten. <laughs> um, and I just feel like if the producer is looking at this movie you're making and going, this is too fucking gay in 1948. This is not just me reading in like modern yeah. queer things. Um, the other thing... Um oh also uh in a in an interview in 1984 Graham Greene who um there's some speculation that Graham Greene may have been bisexual he's the one who wrote the the original book uh that this was based on as well as the the screenplay um he talks about uh how Selznick was also saying things like what's all this buggery boys what's all this buggery I, um and, <laughs> and and green said i said buggery he said look chap uh look chap goes out to find his friend doesn't find him he's apparently dead why doesn't he go home <laughs> um <laughs> but anyway another thing that um an early script included that is not included in the final script or the final movie um, is a scene where of uh, the bedroom in the hotel where Martins is staying. It's at night. Uh, Martins is so. Th- I'm just going to read here. Martins' bedroom, night. Martins is half undressed and is laying on the outside of his bed with his shoes on. He is wide awake and staring at the ceiling. The door opens and Captain Carter, a young, tough, phlegmatic soldier, appears carrying a valise. I don't think we ever see this character at all um, in the final version. Uh, Carter. Hello, what are you doing here? Martins, it's my room. Carter, as a matter of fact, it's mine. He begins to unpack his valise. Um, Martins, they said you were in Klangenfurt. What shall I do? There isn't another room. Carter, the big's bag- <laughs> the bed's big enough for two. He picks up the telephone and dials. Do you snore? Bruh. Martins, no. Carter, nor do I. End of scene. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, this is also one of the, the reasons why I love this movie is because I feel like most people watch this movie and are like, that was a film noir. And I watched this movie and I'm just like, this is the gayest fucking film noir that I've like <laughs> seen be allowed to be produced. <laughs> um, it's so wild. I'm sorry I keep drawing this uh, comparison, but um, this is gayer than the movie Casablanca that ends on um, two men walking off and talking about how they're going to live a happy life together from now on. Yeah. <laughs> Much gayer than that. Um, no, but it's just a fantastic movie. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I just... When I when I talk about like the homoerotic tension and a lot of this stuff, this just knocks it out the park. <laughs> um, anyway, so good. I feel like there's some other stuff we can talk about that that comes out or comes up in this. I did, but um, yeah. I just before we move off this entirely, I do just want to like point out like the ways in which Joseph Cotton's character. Is talking so much about like oh he changed my life and like ah oh, we had such good times together. Never says what those good times are. Yeah. Ne- never do we get a flashback to them like hanging out. Never do we get much information about their friendship. Only that like they haven't seen each other in ten years, and uh, 
a Holly can't stop thinking about him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's all we've get. And also one of the friends of Harry Lime, the the guy who we first see with the small dog, um, he like makes some comment too of like, oh yeah, Harry talked about you all the time. Like, you know, basically like similar things of like, uh, you know, like one of the like most important relationships in his life, basically. <laughs> um, I forget the exact line, but it is also very like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a great fucking movie. Um, you know, we talked in one of the earlier segments about like the like noir being concerned with like like these these sort of like like in the heat of the night being concerned with race or seven being concerned with like nihilism um and i think this movie does a such a good job of like <laughs> muddying up the waters and, and introducing all that same sort of ambiguity and, and, and all these sorts of things around like is it okay to like help the police like are the police just like <laughs> an instrument of violence that should never be assisted or like sometimes like is there (laughs) the the conflict in the third man is 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 there sometimes in life a situation so extreme that you have to go to the police but like it has to be the most extreme situation for anybody to even consider speaking to the fucking cops (laughs) it's just like killing and like also leaving like you know, a thing that, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, like, Callaway. Callaway's the, like, main police officer. But it's, like... Callahan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Calla- I think his name's Callaway. His name is Callaway. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the funny things is just, like, people continually messing up people's names. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah, Callaway is, like... You know, a bunch of kids died from this, but the ones who have it even worse off are the ones who got, like, meningitis but are still alive and are just, like, in this state of, um, you know, meningitis is, like, a a very serious disease. So, um, Mm -hmm. especially if you cannot properly treat it in time, it can, like, cause very horrible brain damage. So, um, yeah, it, it is just... It is funny that, like, it takes us granted that, like, we're all gay here. We know not to call the cops. But, like, <laughs> when your ex-lover says, I feel fine killing hundreds of children if I make lots of money doing it, is that a situation <laughs> where maybe, like, you know, fuck all cops, but until they're gone, maybe call the cops on this one? <laughs> maybe, maybe until we find the other solution? <laughs> yeah, like... Maybe in a world where cops exist, I guess if somebody is saying, hey, would you like to murder children for money? I guess you should call the police. (laughs) And even still, like, some people are like, no, you should call the police. Yeah. Uh, Volley characters still like, no, you're a snitch. Fuck off. (laughs) Um, But I mean, like, if you think, like, you know. Like, this movie is so concerned with the war, and, like, you know, people are like, oh, Vienna's not that bombed out as other cities. Man, you know, like, Berlin, they had it rough, or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, But, like, you know, you see the incompetence of police. Like, these are people who are all living immediately after World War II, and they've seen that, like, 
you know, um, they've seen the sort of incompetence of states, you know, like, like, you know, um, no one, no one in, in Vienna in 1949 believes in like the divine right of kings. Like they see through it as like, oh, these are all bureaucrats who are just looking out for themselves. Um, and like, like, what even is the law around here? You've got four different countries half-acidly trying to enforce the law. They're not even doing a good job because, like, you know, um, <clears throat> these kids are getting meningitis, you know, as just one example. You see all sorts of stuff in this movie. Um, but, like, no one, like, respects the government. Everybody kind of understands that, like, government is just a construct. Um, and so... Why would you go, like, help those people track down our friend? Sure, our friend is murdering children for money, but why would you help those guys? <laughs> Fuck those guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. I, I think the movie does, like, a really good job with, like, introducing all this sort of, like, moral, ethical ambiguity um, into, like, <laughs> the most extreme circumstance. Yes. <laughs> um it it is it does like it, for in some ways it's helped it age better for me too because of how much it mm -hmm. is just like um it is taking for granted the starting position of like no fuck the police <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and then like trying to like test that with just the most ridiculous scenario um which also like one of my favorite moments um in the film which is a big thing that lots of people love is the the um improvised speech from uh um uh, orson wells here which um I think this is I think this is that I found it the uh you know what the fellow said in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias they had warfare terror murder and bloodshed but they produced Michelangelo Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance in Switzerland they had brotherly love they had uh 500 years of democracy and peace and what did that produce the cuckoo clock um and part of what's funny about it to me is that there is this like there are people who will uh, talk about all the inaccuracies in this, like, okay, Switzerland was not, like, this place of peace and democracy during that time. Um, also, they didn't invent the cuckoo clock. But to me, so much of the point of it is, like, this character is a person who will just say this kind of shit and believe it, uh -huh. and believe it well enough that you, as the person hearing it, wants to also believe it. Um mm -hmm. In a in a way that is just like, and that is just like full of like cocky swagger that is like propulsive and convincing, um, and that f seems so much more like correct than him having this like actual um, fact based worldview based on like Switzerland and the Borgias under Italy, like Italy under the Borgias, like. <laughs> <laughs> that's not mm -hmm. that's not who that's not who he is he's not a person who has like studied history and come to this conclusion he is a person who is like started from the point of just like n no i am like fully bought into the like 
capitalist ethos of like fuck everyone else get yours um get as much of it Mm. as you can and i'm gonna like half remember a thing that i read in a book once um and i'm just gonna spit it out as like an explanation of my my philosophy um but it's like it's not grounded in like the whole point of it to me is not that it is true (laughs) it's just that he believes it yeah he believes that he's correct about the world (laughs) like he he um like his character is so deliberately constructed Mm -hmm. you know and i don't just mean that in like the the sort of like oh graham green wrote the script in this such a way like orson welles is playing him like okay so what we're gonna do it, it, it like i or the character is like, I'm going to construct a scenario so that when Holly walks out of that building, he's going to see me across the street. And then I know exactly where I'm going to run to. And I'm going to like time like the lights to go out and like just this certain way that I can like get a head start. And then like, you know, he leaves Holly hanging for a while, you know, like, um, Holly's waiting by the, um, um, like, ferris wheel for a little while for harry to show up and in my head like harry is spending that time like getting ready what he's gonna say you know he's he has these like little verbal ticks that he's like leaning on so much he says old man a bunch or 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 poor devils or or he has all these like little phrases that he just says a bunch that i think are part of his charm and i think he's like a guy who like really wants to like perfectly construct every conversation so that he wins Mm -hmm. and so i am certain that like he is a guy who like uh read this like italy under the borgias thing or heard it or someone else said it to him and he's like oh i'm gonna like you know i'm gonna like rephrase it so that it's a little snappier like so that i can say it in like my charming way and then you know when Holly and I get off the Ferris wheel, I'm going to hit him with that line and, you know, disappear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that that's who he is. <laughs> yeah. I think a, a thing that I was thinking of too, while you were, um, while you were like talking about that is tying it back into a little bit of what we were talking about with Sonatine as well, but in like a, a slightly different way, but like, Part of what is so um, interesting to me about Harry Lyme as a character um, for like how little screen time he gets in this is that um, like you are seeing it and like it is impossible not to just see it as like Orson Welles really well uh, like performing really well as this like very assured uh and like cocky and full of himself but like in a magnetic and weirdly charming way person mm-hmm. in a way that is like definitely some of that just feels like Orson Welles and some of it is this performance but that also that is who he is playing is somebody who is kind of this but also is like constantly performing in every aspect of his life because he is like always he's always on Right. Like Harry yeah. Lyme is a person who is also giving a performance in that scene in the same yes. way that Orson Welles is and is on yes, in that absolutely. scene. But Orson Welles is somebody who is like 
also kind of just like weirdly magnetic and charming, even when he's being like a cantankerous old man. Um, mm-hmm. But that also can really turn it up in this way. And it's so that's it's this thing where I watch it and I'm like, I don't think Orson Welles is somebody who who like fully, truly in the same way believes that like, yeah, fuck them kids if I'm getting a bunch of money. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not to this extreme. I'm sure there's a certain amount of Orson Welles being like, fuck them kids as long as I'm getting my money. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but just the way that like... Like, Harry Lyme kind of just feels so much like Orson Welles because of this, like, weird blending of, like, the character is also doing a performance in the same way that the actor is doing a performance, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are lots of other little moments in this that I love a lot. One of my favorites, though, that's just a small moment that, like, people may have even missed, but that I just think is such a funny, like, little sight gag, is when they're going to show the, like you know, here's all the like slides of the horrors that Harry Lyme did. Um, the, the like other officer guy who works with Calloway, uh, accidentally puts in the wrong reel and it's just a picture of a rhino. (laughs) And they're like, come on, change up. And it's just such a funny sight gag to like show up in this movie because so much of the rest of it is just like banter back and forth. You know, um, there's like some really good stuff early on in a, like, um, you know, beer hall or something where um, Calloway and Martins meets and there's also the the officer and, you know, there's exchanges of like, oh, I'm going to, like, after it of like, oh, I'm going to see a doctor. Oh, why? Oh, about this, like, bruised lip, you know, from when he was hit and stuff. You get, like, a lot of those, like, really of this era, snappy one-liner kind of back and forth, little callbacks. Um that are that are just really good. It's just great hearing people talk with such quick banter and saying funny things. Um, but it's it always sucks <laughs> when you know that like this is so good that like the forties and fifties Hollywood they just knew how to write dialogue and then and then like Joss Whedon watched these movies and like took all the worst lessons yeah. from it and then ruined dialogue for two decades of American cinema. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so much of it is just that like very dialogue heavy little bits of like humor throughout the movie. Um, and so it's, it's part of why just the sight gag of, we're going to show you the like horrors of Harry Lyme. Here's a rhino just extra lands for me because it's so outside of like the rest of the way that humor works in this, this movie, um, Mm -hmm. that just makes it like extra great to me. I love it so much. And that every time that happens, I'm like, (laughs) the fucking rhino. So fucking I think it's a rhino. It's some zoo animal. I'm pretty sure rhino. It's a rhino. I remember. (laughs) Um, um, I'm trying to think, um, if I have anything else. Yeah. Honestly. Uh, one of the other things is uh, just, this was shot on location and it's fucking incredible that they oh shot it on God, location. Oh my God. It's the, like um, one of the most beautiful movies ever. Yeah. Well, and some of these um, like night shots and stuff would have been like with exact, like how beautifully shot they are. And also so many of them seem to be like, I tweeted while we were watching this, like, does anything look as good as a black and white shot of a rain slick street at night? But like, no, there's stuff where like, were they just like pouring water on the street so they could make it look like it had rained to get a shot? Because otherwise, like, how did they have the, the streets wet 
but then also set up all the lighting that they had to do to make the shot work <laughs> and not like right. have something <laughs> fucked up. Like there's just parts of these mo- this movie where um not in like special effects, how did they do it or whatever, but there's just the like extreme I'm so impressed at how fantastic of of like and composed of shots they get for this being almost entirely shot on location. Um, I think some of the interior yeah. stuff might be sets, but like um, the 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 exterior stuff, like there are times where like you can tell it's on location because of certain things, but like it's so perfectly composed that it almost looks like a painting. Yeah, you know, and then like you know, like Joseph Cotton will like walk into what I thought was a painting, and it's like no, that's like a real building that they just like so perfectly got the camera like just so that like it just looks like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there are there are parts in the sewers in particular where I was like, it, this feels like it has to be like constructed sets, but then there's stuff that would just be like, oh, that's a really good painting, and then Orson Welles just runs back there, and you're just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> um, are they just are all of these just in the sewer? And I think most of them. There might be a couple that are constructed. I think most of that's just actual sewer stuff. It would just be wild yeah. shooting too. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um. Every other. Yeah, that... Every other like like uh, I think the fugitive is the one that has a big chase through the sewers. That's iconic. I feel like every time that there's been a chase through the sewers afterwards, they're just trying to do this and not quite getting it. <laughs> there's some great ones, yeah. but. You can't top the third man for sewer chases. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. Um, I feel like I had one other thing that was coming to my mind, and it's it's gone now. But it's yeah. probably okay. Oh, the the music. I f- forgot to look up what the instrument was. I think it's the. Oh yeah. I don't know. the The music is so good. Yeah. It's like a weird strim- um, strummed instrument, actually, which I don't think is zither. Or maybe it is. Oh, I. Oh yeah, I was it's only the I thought we had. I thought we had two emails, but we have three, which I'm gonna send to you now. Oh, okay. Um, I forgot that we had emails. Yeah. Um. Do we want to rate the stairs while I send you these emails? Um. Sure. I might also go pee, but it's S for yeah. the stairs. Um, yeah, it's an S. Easy. Done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um there are a lot of stairs there are many of them every single they one is gorgeous <laughs> um, jinx you owe me a soda <laughs> uh, i'll get you a dr pepper starlight or whatever the fuck it's called oh <laughs> or not dr pepper i uh, thought Coke. you were gonna squirt me um uh, i guess i can get you a squirt i think we have squirt anyway i'm gonna go I pee i don't even really like squirt like that I'm going to go pee. I know that we do these jokes on divers all the time, but now that I'm the one having to endure them and not counter having to endure me doing it, I'm going to sigh at you for making squirt jokes like that. This is a highbrow podcast, Autumn. Okay.
Oh, you sent me emails. I did. Uh, <coughs> oh, wait, it's not in this that I sent. Okay, here we go. Dang, we got new people. Yeah. New person. But still. Um, yeah. We're back. Um, emails. Um, oh, this ties into what we were just talking about before we left. Um, Mimic asks, wondering what y'all think of the music in this movie and how it's used. Uh, this is a movie I grew up watching a couple times and actually wrote a report on once for school. The little theme is absolutely stuck in my head. Yeah, the, um, the theme for this movie is fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> I meant to, one of the things that, uh, really drove me nuts about Seven is that, like, um, the soundtrack is really <laughs> bad, I think. <laughs> um, and... As I was watching it, and I was like, why am I noticing the soundtrack so much? I never notice the soundtrack in movies, and I'm really noticing it here, and I hate it. And it would make sense that I was maybe noticing it because I was also noticing the soundtrack of The Third Man, because I was like, this is so good, and it fits the movie so perfectly, I love this. <laughs> so I might have just been more, like, tuned into that sort of thing this week. In the Heat of the Night also has a fantastic soundtrack. I wonder if I was just, like, you know, in that headspace this week. Yeah. Um, fun fact about the third man theme, uh, sometimes also referred to as the Harry Lime theme. Um, this topped the international charts in the fifties. I forget exactly when it did it, but, um, huh. like a couple of years after the movie. Um, well, I know that, um, after the movie, um, Orson Welles starred in a, like Harry Lime radio yeah. drama for a couple of years. So maybe in, in connection to that, uh, maybe, I'm looking at this other utilization. Um, I just like pulled up the Wikipedia article for this. because I was trying to see if I could find when it topped the charts. Um, the third man theme was used in a 1982 TV mail order record collection, aerobic dancing. <laughs> and then their third Weird. man scene is informally known in Japan as the Ebisu beer theme which is still used in Ebisu beer commercials to this day. For this reason, it is also used at Ebisu Station of the JR Yamanote line, um, uh, Saikyo line, and Shonan Shinjuku line to inform passengers of departing trains. Um, that's wild. Um, Ebisu is the beer that Misato drinks, just for additional context <laughs> here. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I don't. There's like more here than I thought there was going to be, and I don't see immediately where they have. Um. It topped the charts in 1950, so it was okay. probably just like whenever they put it out as a single. Yeah, it spent 11 weeks at number one on Billboard's U.S. bestsellers and stores chart. Um, wow. And then. Yeah, the, um, the like fairly unknown guy who was playing the zither got popular after it too. I guess also there's a guitar version by Guy Lombardo. Um, huh. maybe I will I will do the guitar version somewhere in here. Maybe during my pee break or something. Joe asks. What is the best and the worst director that had a movie covered by stairwells 
to be put in command of a weekly cooking show. <laughs> um. So best, Kitano Takeshi, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> it would be like a very frustrating cooking show. I feel like it would. It would be, be very frustrating. I would hate to be a contestant on that show. Would Would Kitano starts tap dancing? Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, his would definitely be like a competition show. Yes, um, absolutely. And it would be like that one Alton Brown one, the like Cutthroat Kitchen or whatever. But just like I love that show. Yeah, but that like show's great. Way fucking like weirder and unpredictable, and just like uh, frustrating to everyone involved. Except for Kitana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love it. Who would be the worst? Do, um, do you have one? The worst? Um, I I just had one jump out at me when I was scrolling through movies we'd covered. Um, Don Hertzfeld is certainly among. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know that much about that man other than I met him briefly and he like signed some of my stuff when I randomly encountered him um during a screening at the music box. Um I mean it was it was a screening of one of his movies. I wasn't just like randomly running into him in the the audience and happening to have DVDs of his. But anyway, um yeah, I would I feel like the thing like, if he had a cooking show, it would be like, here's how to microwave a hot dog. Just the vibe that that man gives off <laughs> from the times that I've, like, seen him speak or interacted with him in any way. Uh, I could be entirely off base. Man could be a great chef. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like Brian De Palma it, would similarly do a bad cooking show. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Brian De Palma has not prepared a meal for himself since the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> um there's a moment where I like I don't think this is either the best or the worst, but I do think Jackie Chan would just have an entirely charming like it would be one of those cooking shows where um usually it's like here's just some uh you know, woman in the kitchen and she's like cooking and teaching you how to do three meals and like talking about her family or whatever. Um, but Uh I feel like Jackie Chan would just do like a charming version of that where it's just like him just like cooking food, but then also sometimes there's just like funny stunts happen or something. Yeah. It would just be like, it would be like like warm and charming and it would mostly just be him. I think. Yeah, I don't. I I think people would tune in because they're like, "Oh, it's the Jackie Chan cooking show." I can't wait for the gimmick, and then I think they would be surprised to learn there's no gimmick. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, like I don't think it would. I don't think he would plan out huge stunts for his cooking show in the way that he would for a movie. I think he would sometimes uh-huh. just think of something funny to do in the moment of like flipping yeah. a bowl or something. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it would be like very small little things, but that would still just be fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, for sure. David Lynch cooking show would be great. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, we, that yeah, exists. It's on it. YouTube. It <laughs> I would go for 80 more episodes of that. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. I feel like we've got some, some good answers there. Um, Simon Long would be like entirely real time cooking show. <laughs> you just have to like watch in real time as he like cooks something that takes like two hours (laughs) it would (laughs) 
the worst part of the Siding Log cooking show would be it, like this week we're doing a pot roast. And then he's like, you get like five minutes of prep time of him like chopping some carrots and onions and potatoes. And then he puts it all in the pot and puts it in the oven and goes and like watches a movie. And then it's just filming him sitting on his couch watching a movie. <laughs> That's literally what it would be. <laughs> um, I feel like there would be a certain charm to it, though. People would tune in. Yeah, it would. It would be closer to like ASMR YouTube than it would be like a cooking show. I feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and our final question from Ina. Um, what is your le- favorite parentheses or least hated seventh movie in a series or franchise? Lord have mercy! How many movies have I watched seven of in the series? <laughs> I can't imagine it's many. Um, I am not committed like this. Yeah, this was one where I should have like prepared to to look at more stuff. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I did not read it until about the time I sent it to you. So yeah, um, I remember the seventh Harry Potter movie being one of the better <laughs> ones. I don't know that that's true. Um, I I don't really remember the Fast and the Furious, the oh, seventh Fast and the Furious IMDb movie. list of seventh film in a franchise. I'm going to send you this link. Oh, okay. Give me a yay or nay on Star Wars The Force Awakens. Um, that's not going to be it. Uh, Days of Future Past, Harry Potter, Furious well- 7... Sorry. <laughs> so the thing I'm I'm currently just like going to to double check, but like yeah, the final Red Peony Gambler movie is number seven. Like I don't know, or no, there was an eighth one. Um, I think I like number eight more than number seven, but still, like as you're just going through this, everyone has to remember that has to top Red Peony Gambler for me. <laughs> <laughs> um also some of these like x-men days of future past just like i guess that's number seven that like that just doesn't feel yeah Send me another list i just i just don't i just am not committed in this way a yeah. lot of the time i just um i just don't like watch series the same ways that other folks do. Um, Doctor Mabusa, like I want to watch those yeah. movies. Like, um, sure, Doctor M's a good movie. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not as good as some of the other ones, but this is the post Fritz Lang one. The Fritz Lang ones. Oh, are good. this. Uh, this is I say Godzilla. Where's Showa Godzilla? Let me see what the se- seventh Showa Godzilla movie is. Because um, Godzilla vs. Destroyer, the seventh uh, Heisei Godzilla. I, I, I recall Destroyer being a better one. I, it's been a it's been a long time. See, I'm not as familiar with the Heisei stuff. I'm like Heisei. deeply critical of the, the way that they're like grouping some of these. Because they say Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as number seven in the Dracula series. And I'm like, I, That's I not... guess, but like that doesn't feel in the spirit of the question. Yeah. Um, Godzilla it's it's very funny that um 
the seventh film in the Deep Throat series is Deep Throat Six. <laughs> um, the seventh Showa Godzilla film, um, at least going by Wikipedia, which might be inaccurate because who knows if you count certain things like Valerians or whatever. I don't know. But the seventh on um, Wikipedia is Abira Horror of the Deep, which is one of the better um, Jun Fukuda movies. I'm kind of critical of the the Jun Fukuda stuff, um, but that's one of his better ones, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess he also did Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, which is one of my favorites, so uh, I'm retracting that shade. I think I'm only throwing that shade because I associate him most strongly with directing Son of Godzilla, which, like, to be fair, no one could make Son of Godzilla a good movie. Honda could not have made that a good movie. <laughs> um... I guess it is it is titled Guinea Pig 7, but Guinea Pig 7 Slaughter Special is basically like a is weirdly like a compilation movie of the Guinea Pig series, which is kind of a strange thing to say, but um if it was number 6, Devil Doctor Woman's great. Have I told you about Devil Doctor Woman? No, I'm not familiar. Um so it is considered the 6th in the the uh Guinea Pig um series which includes i think the one that you've probably heard the most about is mermaid in a manhole which also weirdly came up on a um i think a a can't say that i have uh a beach house episode i think anyway um the devil woman doctor is like one of the the most just like comical of these um they're kind of just like strange uh japanese like v cinema horror but it's like mostly weird special effects gore stuff um but devil doctor woman has uh peter the the uh drag queen who's from um who's the main character in funeral parade of roses um and uh is playing the devil doctor woman who is like doing various it's basically just vignettes with different uh, patients and it's just like strange things of like um, a zombie with a still living girlfriend, uh, a Yakuza member with a sentient tumor with a human face growing on his stomach. Um, Yeah. Uh, The first patient produces soybean paste under his feet and can spit eggs containing infant aliens from his mouth. Um, huh. it's just like bizarre things, but it's this one sounds that, like Neo movies. Yeah, but it's like some of the other ones like get like kind of upsetting and how like grotesque they are. Whereas this one's just kind of like just weird, sp- goofy special effects for like the fun of it. So, um, um, I I found my answer. Yeah, my like definitively my favorite answer would be the seventh movie in the Samurai series. Seven Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Nothing for that one. Not a laugh. Not a giggle. I just I just got a deadpan it. Nothing. No. I was so proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you online? <laughs> people can find me at Foxmomnia on Twitter. Uh, I guess also you can follow me at media underscore pile, which I, I don't always say, but um, that's where I will sometimes tweet screenshots of things that I'm watching or whatever. 
Um, anyway, I think my answer is still Red Peony Gambler 7. Um, you can find me on Twitter at a terminal underscore coffee. You can find all my podcasts, exportodd.io. Uh, you give us a dollar, you get this podcast early, you get Gotham City Limits early, you get other stuff. Um, or um, I lost my train of thought. You can give us five dollars a month, you can get Pop Town Funk, um, which is very good. Um, I'm going to take a moment just to like slightly more sell Ghost Divers because we just did the yeah. the Solid State Society episode, um, which I think is a like if if people have been hesitant to jump into Ghost Divers because we do sometimes cover longer series, um, and I know that can be like a bigger commitment to have to watch through like an entire fifty episode anime or whatever, um, or. 25 or whatever it is um but anyway like the the ghost in the shell one that we just did i i think is one where if you have some familiar with ghost in the shell um there's like the we did the uh 1995 movie we did the innocence uh episode uh we also did the solid state society movie which uh maybe has a bit more involved to like get to because it is really playing off of like being a continuation of um standalone complex stuff but like if you've watched standalone complex but not super recently and don't want to rewatch it you could still probably rewatch solid state society and listen to that episode um the other thing is that we're about to go into um because we kind of got out of like the original project that we had when we first came up with the podcast we had like here are the series that we want to hit um and there's a few that we're still going to do that I've like ended up putting into the, the next section that's coming up. Um, but in terms of our next few ones, they're going to be shorter series. Um, and part of it is also us trying to bring in more guests for a little bit. Um, and then we kind of have a new rhythm we're going to hit after a while. But um, so coming up next is Bacano. And then after that, we're actually going to start recording the serial experiments lane episodes with you soon. So that's going to be after Bacano. Yeah. Um, and then we're also doing paranoia agent and Kino's journey, which is going to get us through, uh, next January. Um, and then we'll do an extremely long series. So, um, but we, we are, uh, no scoping iron blooded orphans out from underneath GGP. So all the people who want to yell about iron blooded orphans can listen to our podcast. Um, <laughs> is really what's happening there. Um, I do this with M's blessing, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, go listen to ghost divers. Export odd slash ghost divers. I think. Yeah. Um, um, that's about going to do it for us. We've been going for two hours. I'm fucking tired. Yeah. I mean, we've been going for two and a half hours, but people are going to hear the last 35 minutes after God. <laughs> we went so long on Twin Peaks. Oh. Um depending <laughs> Wikipedia counts things a little funny. Uh-huh. Uh first movie Star Wars. Second movie Star Wars Holiday Special. Empire Return of the Jedi. The Ewok Adventure. Ewoks the Battle for Endor. So that making the seventh Star Wars movie. The Phantom Menace, (laughs) 
which is very amusing to me. Yeah. Um, the Phantom Menace better than most other people's uh, seventh entry in a franchise, I suppose. See, this is why I feel like you can't just do that style thing. Like, that's why I don't, like, yeah. buy the, the Dracula or the, like, Frankenstein or yeah. whatever ones where, like... Because... Because no one remembered that there were two Ewok movies until they showed up on Disney Plus last yeah. year. Yeah, well, and also because, like, this stuff just gets, like, what do you include and what do you not include in that franchise for a lot of the stuff, you know? Um, um, Wikipedia also has Ring and Juon as one series, uh, making the seventh entry um, the American remake of, of Juon. What? What? Like I am I am reporting <laughs> I am reporting the news. That's like that's like being like oh so there is a Freddy versus Jason movie so that means that those are both the same franchise. It's like yeah, no. That Aliens and Predator are the same franchise. Yeah. No. What is going on here? If you want to have it be where number seven is a good one for oh, you on oh, the grudge, I scrolled. Just... I kept scrolling on Wikipedia, and I did get to um, the Freddy versus Jason franchise. <laughs> I did get to that. Um, in which case, the seventh film is A Nightmare on Elm Street Two. <laughs> um. It's also funny to see all the anime mixed in here. Like, oh, there's Crayon Shinchan. Yeah. Uh, oh, Debbie does them all. That was a real highlight of the series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the seventh DBZ movie is Lord Slug. I remember. Oh, you're just in the the eleven to twenty films. Like, I did not notice that the list uh-huh. that you sent me was literally only seven. Yeah, I did. I didn't notice that either until I was like poking around, and I yeah. was like, "Oh, damn, Lord Slug." Um, this makes it much harder when you when you have like some of these huge. But again, the way that they do this is deeply, deeply absurd. suspect and absurd. <laughs> um, but no, because if you wanted know. to get a bunch for Gion, you just do the like, you know, short the short yeah films. the short films and like TV stuff that happened first. Um, there are nine American Pie movies. Yeah, I believe that. Um, Most of them were probably directed to video. Um, let me see. I'm just scrolling through, making sure I don't miss anything. Yeah, because there, um, there's Timeline 1, which is Katasumi and um, 4444444444. forget how many there are. Um and then there's the Jew on the Curse and Jew on the Curse 2, which were uh, V Cinema. Um, and then you get Jew on the Grudge, Jew on the Grudge 2, uh, Jew on Black Ghost, White Ghost. This, <laughs> speaking of, of, of deeply suspect, um, Spider-Man 1, 2, 3, The Amazing Spider-Man 1, 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, and then the seventh Spider-Man film being Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That is not in any way a sequel to 
any of the other extant Spider-Man movies. It is, I guess if I'm accepting that, it is the best seventh movie of any franchise. Like, I'm not going to argue with you, except that I don't think that's the seventh movie in the Spider-Man franchise. Um, if I do it my method with, with Juon, then the seventh one is The Grudge 2, which is the 2006 um, Hollywood one that was produced by Sam Raimi. Um, that's a pretty good one. God, oh, I should rewatch. I forgot that Sam Raimi just like spent a couple of years like producing like horror stuff because yeah. that's where his heart actually is. I should just go back and rewatch a bunch of Juon stuff. I I don't think I'm gonna watch yeah. um Katsumi and four 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 or whatever. <clears throat> um, mm. but yeah. The seventh Sharknado movie um, is Sharknado 5, Global Swarming, because um, apparently the, the, the Lavantula movies uh, tie into this. Uh, no, I will not be clicking on Lavantula. Uh, not going to find out what that's about. Um, man. All right. I think I've exhausted this. I think Enter the Spider-Verse is the official victor. <laughs> Thank you, Ina. Um, it's either Spider-Verse or, or Lord Slug. <laughs> Stupid podcast. <laughs> I can't believe we went so much longer after you said that we were done. Okakoro is real. Okakoro is real. Hitting stop. Lord Slug is Namekian and the main antagonist of Dragon Ball Z, Lord Slug. It is explained that he is one of the super Namekians and was sent to Planet Slug as a baby to escape the extinction of those about to be on As he matured, the evil in his heart began to overwhelm his character thanks to a rare mutation unique to Namekians. This transformed him into a super Namekian. Since then, he has gathered an army and became a conqueror of planets. I'm telling you all about Lord Slug. Should I stop recording?
Till 
So tell me about the first eight parts of Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah, so... I guess, like, up front, I'm glad that I... watched half a movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> up front, I'm glad that I decided... Because I've been thinking for a while, like, oh, I should watch that before we get to it on the podcast. Maybe I'll watch it along with Totally Reprise. But then I was also thinking of, like... I don't know, because I think we will already be doing Twin Peaks, our part, by the time that they get to it in Totally Reprise. And so, one, I don't want to have, like, I'm jumping back and forth between Twin Peaks. Also, I kind of want to have the space where if anything comes up early on that makes you want to talk about season three, that we can just do that. Because when we do Twin Peaks... It's just going to be spoiler central. Um, And when we watched, we watched the first episode together. Yeah. But like, we just like, when we have time, either it's committed to like, you know, watching movies for stairwells or we're just chilling and I don't want to be doing work for stairwells. And so we haven't kept up with watching season three. So I think it's probably wise for you to just get it done on your own time. Even if I'm sad that I can't like, you know. (laughs) tag along yeah with your, well with your journey now i'll be now i, I will be texting you like as i'm <gasps> watching episodes i'm sure um i just realized you watched episode eight <laughs> yes oh um, my god <laughs> um yeah there's a moment where i almost revealed it to you um i i oh my god. i sent a text to the group chat that is the Um, I, it's, we have it, the bodice of playboys is the name of it right now, which is just like multiple layers of people saying things wrong on hot singles at this point. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) uh, it's the chat that's you, me and Alexis. Um, and there's a part where I just said, um, let me see if I can like even find it. Um, cause it was a line from, from episode two, uh, and then I was like, no, wait, I I think it would be funnier to tell Autumn on the podcast that I've been watching Twin Peaks The Return. Um, oh, I here it is. I said, losing my shit at James isn't just cool. James has always been cool. <laughs> uh, I assumed that this was like, because I'm about a month behind on Totally Reprise. I assumed you were just like laughing at something from Totally Reprise yeah. when you posted that. Um, and yeah, there was a moment. I know where they're I was not like, at oh. season three yet, but I assumed like Luke had said it or something. Yeah, you know. Um, no, that's a line in in episode two, and then I was like, that seems like a small enough line that people don't remember it, but I will because it's just very funny to me. Oh um, yeah, no, it is. <laughs> James has always been cool. Is one of my favorite f- stupid fucking lines of the return. Um, have, you, have you met? I think you have. Have you met? Um, uh. uh Andy and Lucy's son. Yes, yes, that happens fairly <laughs> early on. That's um, what I thought. That's a great fucking, fucking moment. Um, fucking incredible. Anyway, I'm I'm kind of glad that I did decide to because when we first talked about us doing like Twin Peaks on the podcast or doing a Twin Peaks podcast, which you know the germ of that idea was a whole separate podcast, which we just don't have the time for. Um, but like when. We were first talking about that. We were like, it would be fun you having watched The Return and then me watching it for the first time. Um, And there's a part of me now that, like, I'm glad that 
I'm mm-hmm. not having to watch these early episodes and then immediately talking to a mic about my thoughts on them. Because um, to if, be if... honest, like the first two episodes, I was really down on it. Um, I was like, if I well, the first episode to... I kind of liked, but the second episode and the third episode, I think I was really down on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I would have to look at like synopses, but I can I think there's like early stuff that I remember like why you're down on it. I think for me, if I had to like watch an episode and then get into get on a microphone and talk about Dougie, I would have hated season three. Yeah, you know, yeah. I ended up coming around on that storyline, um, but definitely. Especially in, like, the early parts of the season, I would have been like, what the fuck am I watching? Yeah. Well, and <laughs> Dougie's still, like, Mr. Magooing his, li- his way through life right now. Um, yeah. And I'm almost halfway through. And, like, so this is this is part of it, too, is, like, I, I think when I'm talking more broadly, especially if I'm, like, having to go episode by episode, because right now I'm kind of happy to have a moment where I can document on a podcast, hear my broad thoughts of, like, seeing the first eight, eight episodes. Um mm-hmm. But Imagine not have the it Ghost be like Divers version of uh, of the Twin Peaks podcast where you talk about like six episodes of Twin Peaks and go. <laughs> <laughs> no, because we still try the the way that we like structure it is space around half hour episodes. Like our goal is like around three hours of of watching something per episode. Sometimes it mm-hmm. ends up being a little bit more, but so that would be like three episodes. Yeah, we would be doing that's this. still a lot of yeah, Twin Peaks. that is still a lot of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Um, you could get through season two pretty quick that way, but like, yeah. Man. <laughs> um, I mean, Divey goes along for a reason. Um, but like, I I think especially at the very beginning, um, I was just very frustrated that like it wasn't Twin Peaks. I I have I've like watched enough now, and I've like sat with it enough over the the few days that. Currently in my mind, it's, I think my take on it currently is still, it's really, really fun to watch a new David Lynch thing. It's fun to watch a new David Lynch mm. thing where he's working with, um, Frost on it. Um, it. Sort of. Yeah. It <laughs> being like Twin Peaks right now feels more like a detractor than a, a bonus to me. Um, yeah. part of me almost, cause there's interesting things happening here, but part of me almost wishes that like, it was not saddled with being Twin Peaks and could just be its own thing. Um, did you, did you rewatch any part of like the previous Twin Peaks before you jumped into this? No, but what I have been doing is I have, in addition to watching, uh, eight episodes of Twin Peaks The Return. I've also listened through all of the um, Twin Peaks rewatch episodes on this. Um, okay. And so that's been helpful because having... It, they're also going through it for the first time. Yeah. One, they're also going through it for the first time. So it's me listening to someone who is having gut-level reactions as it's coming out and does not know at all where it's going. Nobody knows where it's going. And so they're like with me in that space as I'm listening to it. Uh, that's been a, a, a nice thing. Um, and then also they just have the kind of like, they have the size and kind of audience where like their forums are 
noticing all these things and talking about it and pulling in things. And also they are just people who like, in addition to really loving the show and having done the rewatch podcast and rewatched the show entirely immediately before like Twin Peaks, the return came and they did like a, an episode on their experience watching it yet again. Um, and have like read all the books or like between them, they've basically read all the books. I think some of them haven't mm. read like one book or the other, but um, they have like, I, I will not be reading yeah, any fucking books they, for uh, our podcast. I think when we do it, I might end up listening to their, I might like, we will watch, I will, we will record the podcast. And then that week afterwards, I might listen to their podcast on that episode. And then maybe the next time be like, Oh, here's some things that I like, didn't catch that they brought up because, you know, fans are talking about it or whatever. Um, yeah. But uh, there are some parts that are funny because they, they get it wrong because they're just, like, trying to remember what they watched. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing gets, like, corrected on the next one. But um, it's also funny where, uh, because I didn't start listening to the podcast after I'd watched four episodes because I just sat down and watched four episodes all back to back. Um and then I started listening to the podcast. And so there's some stuff that they're talking about, like with episode one and two, where I'm already laughing, knowing what's happened, like what happens in three and four. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like, there's a part of me. I, I love the soap opera part of Twin Peaks and I'm, I am like sad that it is not there. Um, I knew that it wasn't going to be like, I went into it knowing it wasn't going to be there. But I wondered, mm -hmm. like, what it would be replaced with. And I feel like there are stuff, there's stuff that gestures at it, but that often doesn't land as well. And I think some of there's... it is that it just doesn't have the same, um, like, it doesn't have the same grounding. Like, a thing that they talk about a lot on the Rewatch podcast is that there isn't the, the musical track undergirding the, some of those scenes where just having the, like, you know, brush drum or whatever, like, kind of helps, like, sell it as it's continuing on. Whereas sometimes it's, like, just silence as, like, they're having a really slow, awkward conversation over evidence at the police station. You know, the scene with Lucy and Andy and Hawk. Um, Some of that, I think, um, I think works, particularly the stuff in Vegas, like, works when I look at it as a pastiche of, you know, if, if Twin Peaks is a pastiche of soap opera, and then Twin Peaks The Return is a pastiche of, like, uh, 2010's, like, streaming prestige TV you know, yeah. um, you're you're Breaking Bad's and your Mad Men's and your um, like various and sundry like procedural TV shows, um, which like those shows often have like no soundtrack or very quiet soundtracks that like they're not supposed to draw attention to it. And so sometimes some of that works for me in that way. Um, I think, the but I would agree. I would agree. Like it's not as strong as the like soap opera pastiche it is yeah. not as like you know yeah and some of this is that i just have uh even not having watched that many like straight soap operas that twin peaks is pulling from i still like like part of what i talk about loving about nana is the part that it just becomes a soap opera at some point um like mm -hmm. in manga form but like in it 
there's stuff in in Twin Peaks that's specifically drawing on like uh, of that era American soap opera style with the music and the, the like the exact way that stuff is framed and acted and things. But there's also something that I think is like kind of core to a lot of like soap opera style stuff across um, decades and like uh, cultures and things that is this like you have a bunch of different plot lines that are all running at once and you're kind of jumping very quickly between some of them sometimes in this way that feels like almost weirdly effortless. Um, but then, and they'll often feel extremely disconnected and then sometimes they'll just randomly get connected and things will like cross and, and change. And suddenly there's a whole new status quo. Um, and I feel like we are getting like whole new status quo, but it is not in the same, like, it's not like, actually operating in the same way that um soap opera stuff does and i think some of it is that the pacing is just so much slower um Mm -hmm. it it is not like jumping between and also i think in part maybe because it it is like doing some of this prestige tv like pastiche more i feel like there are just less like characterful moments that are like bread and butter of soap opera style stuff where it's like we just have to fill time so we're just gonna have characters talk to each other for a while um and i love that part i love when just like like this is a thing that i find really um wonderful about and i'm saying this because i'm currently still extremely not a brain and reading through paradise kiss and love yazawa eye stuff but like sometimes there are pages that are like this page has like two panels on it and it's this extremely extravagantly drawn like image of the like intense emotions that you have around love and then sometimes there's just like a bunch of panels and most of it is text and it's just characters having banter with each other and sometimes they break the fourth wall in playful ways um and that like back and forth between like extreme emotion and then kind of just like jokey characters interacting um is something that was like so core to twin peaks that i feel like Mm -hmm. hasn't been captured in twin peaks the return the closest is some of the stuff with dougie um but i i at this point, I want Dougie to just become a little bit more of a like. I want Kyle McLaughlin back. I want like I want uh-huh. Agent Dale Cooper back, <laughs> and I uh-huh. think the sh- the show knows that I want that. It is yes. playing with the fact that I want that, and uh-huh. it's not giving it to me. But I'm uh-huh. also like, just give me Dale Cooper being like fucking charming My and talking to Naomi Watts. Like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> have a fun banterful scene between uh kyle mclaughlin and naomi watts what the fuck are you doing right now (laughs) i'm not saying fucking anyway i'm not saying um, a goddamn thing (laughs) and this is the thing i'm glad that i can do this at the end of stairwells where i'm talking about eight episodes and this is my impression of me knee deep and watching Uh through the return because I don't want to just. You are the- I just don't want to have these like gut reactions when we're going through episode by episode, yeah. and like us being like two months into the project and me just being like, "What the fuck is going on? Give me Dale Cooper," because <laughs> there's other yeah. really interesting things happening. But I yeah, I just have this like tension. My um, feelings through the first seven episodes are like 100% in sync with everything you're saying obviously episode eight is its own uh unique thing in the in the pantheon of like yeah all cinema (laughs) 
Like, <laughs> episode eight is like unto itself. Um, but, but like, yes, every. I felt a lot of the same frustrations, and I ultimately am very high on, on the return, but, um,. Yeah, felt a lot of the same, like, what the fuck is going on? I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> um, which this also, like, on the Rewatch podcast, I, they're generally higher on it than I've been. And I think some of it, too, is the other thing that um, is attention for me right now is, like, Alexis was, was recently re-listening to our Mulholland Drive uh, episode because they watched Mulholland Drive. Um, this is the other thing that, like... You know, one of the weird things about Twin Peaks The Return is that it is a total departure from, like, what Twin Peaks is, but it is totally in lockstep with the cinema of David Lynch after mm-hmm. Twin Peaks. Yeah. Like, it is 100% in line with, like, what Firewalk With Me and Mulholland Drive are, to where I think Mulholland Drive is more essential viewing for Twin Peaks Season yes. 3 than, like the first two seasons of Twin Peaks are, Um, you know? (laughs) And the the thing is, like, we talk about things on the Mulholland Drive episode where I'm getting into, like, a thing that I like with a lot of uh, Twin Peaks, or not Twin Peaks, uh, David Lynch stuff broadly, and that I think, like, Mulholland Drive does well, um, is this, like, there are these things that feel like they could be lore or could be pointing towards things, but, like, we never really get what is the, like, the blue key and the blue lock explained. Um, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not, like, lore that we get lore dump about. Um, yeah. So, so much of it is, like, evocative in this way that inspires this reaction in people to try to suss through it in the way that, like, Film Crit Hulk is, like, this is a puzzle box. Um, yeah, there is a, a whole industry of, like, people just deciphering the puzzle box of Twin Peaks Season 3. Yes. Which is, like, did you watch the show? <laughs> but the thing is, the point that I'm in right now, and some of this is also knowing that... Um, that Frost likes this kind of lore conspiracy stuff, I think more than David Lynch does. Um, This is a thing they talk about a lot on, on the Twin Peaks rewatch podcast, which again is if people are listening to this, it's great. If you are watching along with Twin Peaks and you want like somebody who's just really excited about Twin Peaks and all the, the weird fucking lore stuff. um, I think they're, they are definitely more into it about me, but also not to quite the level that some people are. There's a certain amount to which they are extremely happy to have fans who are going to write in or post in the forums and tell them this stuff so that they don't have to do the work, but are still kind of interested in what's the like weird lore stuff and how stuff connecting uh, in a way that I'm like even less interested. And, and so much of Mulholland drive is me talking about like, no, I, for me, so much of Mulholland drive is the like, um, the difficulty in solving that and that it is actually talking about these like weird tensions that exist in the fantasies that we have around queerness. Um, and then how those fantasies, um, like how both forms of those are actually fantasies are actually like cinematic realities of how we talk about like, uh, lesbian relationships, this like very idealized form. And then this like very tragic form. Um, and neither of those are like the actual realities of the experience, but that perhaps like somewhere 
in there, there's some, like, there are elements of reality that you can grasp between the different fantasies. Um, and it is, like, this more complex and, like, evocative thing rather than a puzzle box to be solved or whatever. Um, but right now, being in Twin Peaks The Return Part 8, I still don't know how much of this is going to, like, end up being a lost thing where it is a puzzle box that can be solved or how much of it is going to just continue to frustrate the people who are trying to do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's the other thing where I'm like, I do want to just have watched all this before we get to it for a podcast and I have yeah. to talk about it into a yeah. mic. So um, I, I, I have thought that this was the right thing to do for a couple months and I was so caught up in like, oh, I want to do it with you because I want to live vicariously through you and experience the return <laughs> for the first time again. But that's just not a realistic thing with, like, the way that our lives work, yeah. you know? Um, but, I mean, um, some of it, too, is, like, I now that I've revealed to you, I just wanted to do this on the podcast, did not know how far it was going to get, but there was a part where it was just, like, I need to know, like, where this st- stuff is going now because I can't just, I can't just leave it with Dougie shuffling around and, mm-hmm. like, everything else. Um, I ended up making it much further than I thought I was going to make before we recorded, <laughs> but, um, now I'm I'll probably so... just be texting you during every single episode, but, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, the one, the one thing that I'm like disappointed by is I so wish I could have watched episode eight with you. <laughs> um, yeah. Episode That's the eight one was... thing where I'm like, damn. So this is the other thing that um, early on, there's some stuff that's similar to episode eight, where it's just like extremely um, like evocative images, but that could also potentially contain meanings that are in these like dreamlike large spaces. Um, And that was so much of like episode two and three, um, which was honestly part of, I kind of balked at it a little bit because I was like the, all the stuff with like the lodges is a an interesting part that I I love about Twin Peaks, but I also love that it is a thing that like there's so much reality happening and then it like encroaches upon that reality in various ways. Um, and I felt like so so much of it happened early on and was so long that I was just like, this is only at working in any way because I've watched Twin Peaks, but. But, like, also there's still a frustration of, like, I just want you to show me more of, like, where characters are now while all of this is happening. Um, And then I got a lot of that, and some of it uh, continued to frustrate me or confound me or be like, ha, 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 I'm not giving you what you want. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, and then I got to episode eight, and I was like, episode eight feels like a more appropriate place for it to just have, like a really, really prolonged segment of, like, weird shit happening. Uh, Or, like, you know... Although part of it was, like... The stuff that happens early on really does feel... It it is, like, going above and beyond, but really feels of a kind of what happens in the the show Twin Peaks. Um, What's interesting about episode eight, to me, was this, like, weird... At once, this is, like, unlike anything TV would normally ever do. Especially TV of the scale. Um, On the other end, I've just watched, like, so many movies that... Because there's there's very little at the beginning, I think, of, like, Evil Cooper or Bob or whoever that character is. Um, 
they just keep calling him Evil Coop on the rewatch um, and speculating what relation exactly he has with Bob. But um, mm. uh, you get a very little bit of him like being dead or whatever and whatever's going on with the, the woodsmen, I guess is what the, the uh, credits call them, but like basically yeah. the homeless men. Um, and then you go into, um, I did send a text to Alexis being like, ah, I see they got Don Hertzfeld to direct part of the episode eight, uh, <laughs> which was a, a reference that went completely over their head. But um, there is a there is a part where it's extremely just like Don Hertzfeld experimental animation. Oh, yeah. um, and then it, oh, yeah. and then it moves into like um, there's some 3D animation here that really reminded me of um, the music video to uh, a moom song that is let me see if i can find this um i'm trying to remember the exact title because it's been a while since i have um watched it or listened to this while you pull this up um um, can i just ask you one oh well if you found it then go um it is from I think it's from the I think this is Summer Make Good. It's not actually the really long title. I think the song is Summer Make Good. Um which the the um Yeah, I believe that's the one. I'll have to look it up and send it to you later. I'm not gonna do it right now. Uh or no, will the summer make good for all of our sins? It is a long version of the, of the title. Um which is the just maybe I will see if I can grab this on YouTube and send it to you and you can just kind of look at it because so basically yeah. just to explain to like viewers, people can look it up as well. But it's basically this 3D animation of like a, a extremely it starts with like maggots in the ground. I'm I'm looking at it now. Um, and then you get like this kind of like dead flesh across it. And then as it like goes on, you become aware that it's like this like extremely it's cg animated in a very similar way but this extremely bloated body that's like falling through space or or maybe drifting through the ocean or something um and it's like really let me let me just send this to you and you can like i don't you don't even need the music up you can just kind of flip through some of the the Mm -hmm. video here um we don't want to do the hot singles i mean i guess we could if you want no let's not um but because we're we're past an hour and we haven't even got to the yeah. movie. Uh, but this like some of the stuff that happens really reminds me of like this video, um, which uh, has this like certain okay, yeah. unsettling, disturbing, but also like um, pulling from like old black and white stuff. Um, and then it moves into what I saw some people talking about as like oh, this is just, like, weird and unsettling. And I was just like, this is just, like, a, a like, B-horror movie from, like, the 50s. <laughs> it literally <laughs> is just, like, it came from outer space. Egg hatches, weird insect frog things come out. Uh, strange mm-hmm. guys come to a, a radio station and, like, take over and say some strange thing over the radio that puts everyone to sleep. And then the the, like, things go into their mouths. And I'm like... Oh, this is, I've watched like dozens of movies with like, you know, my buddy Crow making jokes over it. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is such a wild music video. Yeah, like it it is, I think, so deliberately evoking that because like, you know, 
nuclear like mm-hmm. it, it is so obviously like a a, a post nuclear like headspace for that episode you know yes yeah there's a there's a little bit of like tokusatsu almost in it as well um mm-hmm. i think it, it's pulling more directly from like american 50s like b-horror movies um but there is also a little bit of like i i just think a little like i think specifically of toku because there's so much of that era in japan that is like really about the atom bomb because of you know japan being the only country that's been nuked um and having lots of lots and lots of movies about like the effects of radioactive fallout and everything um so um um before we finish up here (laughs) unless i don't want to cut you off no you can go um how are you liking laura dern uh, there hasn't been too much of her yet. Uh, there's been a okay. little bit. Um, I really liked the... I like how she's been kind of a bitch, and then there's the part where she goes and meets with um, Evil Cooper uh, and talks to him, and I think there's some uh, fantastic acting in there. Um, mm-hmm. uh... It's It's so... <laughs> So perfectly David Lynch that after 25 years, he gives you, like, Cooper and um, Diane speaking face-to-face, and it's Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Palmer. It's everything a Twin Peaks fan could possibly want, and um, it's not what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the, the I think so far my favorite parts like in general just like in the experience of watching it have been um gordon cole and i'm totally drawing a blank on his name right now um albert albert um yeah and like to me some of that feels the most in this vein of like twin peaks police procedural stuff uh it hasn't like Mm -hmm. quite hit some of the levels of like the tibetan rock throwing or whatever um but yeah, there like there's a a good vibe um to a lot of those scenes, and I feel like you get the most characterful moments with them so far. Um, I also really really love like Naomi Watts is just an incredible actress, um, and so I love whenever she's, so she's good. in it. But also like sometimes, I think that like, um, Dougie. Why am I drawing a blank on his name now? I'm like losing names at this point in <laughs> McLaughlin, Kyle McLaughlin. Um I think like Kyle McLaughlin is is doing a pretty good job having to like act this this character who's like trapped in this body or exactly whatever's going on. Um and like you know, fading in and out seemingly of like awareness of what's happening or like getting these little glimpses of like coffee, like badge i'm like Mm -hmm. remembering who i was um i think he's doing a a good job like acting that part i just wish that especially with how Mm -hmm. much i love naomi watts and how great she is that there was like more interactions that were just them being good actors acting off of each other (laughs) i want david lynch to make more movies because like i want to see more naomi watts and things and like other people like i she is still in movies with some regularity, but like no one else is going to get, you know, the performances that she gets for, that she gives to David Lynch, you know? Yeah. Um, like, 
So yeah, I think like David Lynch is just better with actors than like most people. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, I just think that like I love Naomi Watts and I I want that to progress more and to get more of like her character because there's also like weird swings of like her just being this like very put upon mom and then also like having these like weird tough like like she's like so smart how she plays the like we don't have the money knowing full well that she could give the full amount that they're asking for, but that if she's, if she gave them that they would feel more confident in like trying to, to up the ante and her really just selling like in this like very gruff put upon mom way. Like, no, this is all we can give you. Like just take this, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's more, it's way more than you had count your losses. Um, Yeah. It's just, she's great. So, yeah. Um, shall we get back to the main podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I got to reveal that to you. <laughs>